Hey, Jay, remember when Wolverine's claws were mechanical? They were never mechanical. That's the magic of retcons, buddy. Right, but until Fatal Attractions, everybody thought they were. Remember that panel when he first popped his bone claws without the adamantium? It blew my mind. The first surprise of many. Oh, you mean like Colossus joining the Acolytes? Well, yeah, that too. But no, I'm still talking about Wolverine. Oh, well, I know he lost his healing factor for a while after that. Only in the direct aftermath of Fatal Attractions. But when it came back, it came back with a vengeance, along with his original mutation. Wait, his original mutation? Yeah. See, apparently the adamantium hadn't just held back his healing factor. It had also held in check a more global mutation that the healing factor was in fact a part of. Which was? Regression to a super powerful but super feral state. It was kind of like when Beast got infected by pestilence and got really strong at the cost of his intellect, but with less pathos and more inappropriate licking. Well then... His appearance changed, too. He got squatter and more bestial. I guess that makes sense. And then over time, he lost his... Opposable thumbs? Nose. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did... Welcome to episode 147 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the 90s 90s harbinger of all, that being Cable. But before that, let's talk about our plans for Emerald City, because we have a lot going on and it is coming up really, really fast. It's going to be, I think, about two weeks away as you listen to this. Yeah, God, that, that is really soon. So we will be there, and we hope that you will be there too, because we're going to be doing some cool stuff. We're going to be tabling all weekend in the podcast area, and we've got a party on Saturday night at Phoenix Comics. It's the same place we had our party and meetup last year. We'll have details for that on our website probably the week before the show. But yeah, Saturday night. On Sunday, we have the live show, and it's a big deal this year because it happens to fall on our 150th episode. 150 episodes? How did that happen? It doesn't feel like that long. A lot of X-Men, buddy. Uh, There's so much, and we've barely scratched the surface. A lot of X-Men. The 90s are just getting started. So yeah, we will be around all weekend. We will have merch, including our brand new Resist t-shirts and buttons. I'm so excited about those. And possibly, if I can get my cards in order, the Magneto made some valid points variant red and purple t-shirts. Nice. Um, Probably only about 25 of those. We'll see. So come see us, and buy things from us, and talk about X-Men. And come to our party. There will be cake, and apparently, probably live music slightly. Yes, and also X-Men fans, lots of those. Yes, and costumes welcome. Oh, and we're cosplaying, I think, sort of. I still have to figure out kind of one major detail of my costume, but... We're gonna make it work. It involves electricity. As well it should. Oh, Uh, yeah. There's a decent chance that this is gonna end with me catching fire halfway through Saturday. And then we burned down Seattle. Again. I mean, I guess that's kind of X-Men appropriate, you know? Uh, There's always the common line about you can always tell where they've been. Yeah, yeah. You can't shop here anymore. (laughs) You're not allowed to rent here anymore. Oh, and I almost forgot, if you're in Portland, Oregon, on February 25th, I'm going to be at the Portland Things from Another World talking to the Panel on Panels folks. It's going to be X-Men Day over there, so there's going to be all kinds of good X-Men stuff, and we are going to talk about that. You know, Well, you're going to talk about that. Yes, I will be there alone. JLS will be elsewhere fighting evil. Well, I will specifically be at the comic book shop where I work working. I suppose that's reasonable. You can come talk about X-Men with me, too, but I won't be with Panel on Panels, and there won't be a, you know, store-wide celebration. So regardless, on February 25th, you have multiple options. Uh, For me, that'll be at 7 p.m., although X-Men Day starts at 11 a.m. So come check it out if you have a chance. Hope you survived the experience. But in the meantime, we would love to tell you about comic books. Would we? We would. Would we? So, previously on New Mutants. 
so Rusty Collins and Skids, they had been members of the first Wards of X-Factor and then New Mutants. Now they are members of the Mutant Liberation Front, having joined up with these terrorist evil mutant types to escape incarceration by the government mutant organization Freedom Force. With Rusty and Skids gone, and Mirage still in Asgard where she'd chosen to remain after the Asgardian adventure, the New Mutants' ranks are severely depleted. Still on the team, we've got Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Warlock, as well as former X-Factor wards Boom Boom and Richter. Now, they had had a status quo briefly where they were living on the giant sentient ship that was X-Factor's headquarters with X-Factor. That is over almost as soon as it started because now they've met the mysterious grizzled mercenary Cable, and now he's their leader and they're running around with him. Cable is a surprisingly decent leader. He's combining Xavier's tutorial skills with Magneto's general zeal and um, gray hair. Anyway, he's a gruff old violent cyborg with a mysterious and undefined past and the New Mutants' third leader. And it looks like the one who's finally going to stick or at least see them through the end of their series. So they have their own new status quo, which we're going to get to momentarily. But there's another bit we should cover, that being what's going on with Caliban. Well, there's something else as well. But yeah, so Caliban is now a horseman of Apocalypse after the mutant massacre. He went to Apocalypse and said, yo, can you, you know, soup me up a little bit? Apocalypse did, made him a horseman, and Caliban is now off to get revenge on the marauders who killed his buds, most immediately Sabretooth. That's a storyline that's following up from X-Factor. The elephant in the room here right now, other than Cable, who is definitely just bulky enough to count, he is roughly the size of like between three and seven new mutants at any given time. But no, is the new creative team. We have Rob Liefeld on RT has taken over as new series artist. And I feel like we're going to need to talk about this at length at some point during this episode. We can do it now or we can do it, you know, partway through the storyline. What do you think? I say we get to it as we come to the various pieces of art that are the most relevant. We do at least have Louise Simonson still writing. She's been writing New Mutants, of course, for dozens of issues at this point. But there's a clash between the writing and the art that's ongoing here. And it's very, very evident looking at it. There are a lot of places where the dialogue seems to be sort of chasing after the art and where the art itself is somewhat actively counterproductive to storytelling and conveying information. So you see a lot of captions sort of, again, rushing to follow up. That's a place that I think we need to talk about beforehand because it does affect what happens and it affects the way the story moves and the way information is conveyed and then just really the basics of what happens. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And we'll certainly give examples as we go. And this is an era reflecting sort of an attitude that we'll see at Marvel more and more and more during this era. Bob Harris, who had taken over as EIC, was convinced that it was the art rather than the writing that really propelled books and especially propelled sales. And so artists were given much freer reign than they had historically had. Many, many, many of the writers who'd been with the lines for a very long time felt justly, I think, that they were being pushed into the margins of the storytelling and of, of the decision making on the books. And ultimately, that will lead to Louise Simonson leaving New Mutants and X-Factor and Chris Claremont leaving X-Men. It's going to be a very different ballgame shortly. But right now, we're in this sort of transitional era. Or what I like to think of as the beginning of the end. <laughs> kind of, yes. Well, the beginning of the next stage of X-Men, because it never, ever ends, of course. Well, no, but, but, you know, different arcs and different eras end. The beginning of the end of an era. Or is it? We can, you know, caption the end of that era, the beginning. As, have... as one should appropriately end anything, Claremonti. Does that mean that we have to have, you know, the bad guy who we thought was dead suddenly open their eyes in the very last panel right before it goes to the question mark after, or is it? No, that's a different set of tropes. Oh, okay. I just like all the tropes. Let's just throw them all together. No. But we digress. As we so often do. So before we dive into the issues we're covering, which, by the way, are New Mutants 90, 91, 93, and 94. Why not 92? 92 is a fill-in, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But let's talk a little bit about this era, this, you know, four-issue total era. It's a very short era. 
So we had the New Mutants living on ship for a little bit. That status quo was similarly brief. Now this one, I gotta say I'm kind of sad it didn't last longer. Because we have the New Mutants running around with Cable, establishing a new base, starting to do some superhero stuff on their own. And that's going to be interrupted very shortly thereafter by the Extinction Agenda crossover, which upends things once again. Their dynamic with Cable at this point is, in some ways, I think, something that the team has been needing for a long, long time. It's something that wouldn't have been out of place, I think, had it come about 50 issues sooner. It's interesting to imagine, too, how the line would have changed if it had. But yeah, it's almost a shame that it shifted away this quickly because it's an interesting status quo. And it's the first real sort of stable status quo we've seen for the New Mutants since before Inferno. There's a lot of potential here. I mean, obviously, the early Rob Liefeld art has some significant problems. Significant. It's so bad. But Louise Simonson does really seem to be getting better over the course of the issues we'll be discussing today at working around that and making the story work as well as it can anyway. And I would have liked to have seen her have more time to do so. See, I disagree with that. I feel like it's watching a three-legged race with two people trying to run in different directions. And yeah, it's interesting watching the ways that they learn to compensate for that, but it's frustrating. I mean, we've talked before about the kind of creative synergy and, and alchemy you get when you've got a writer and artist who are really in sync. And this is the opposite of that. And even when it starts to work, even when you can see Simonson effectively tying herself into knots and doing it successfully, you know, to get around the issues with the art, it's watching something that can be done really well just contort itself terribly to be even functional. I can see where you're coming from with this, and I think part of it with me, part of the reason that I'm so inclined to find reasons to like it, aside from my, you know, usual default tendencies of doing so with everything, is that New Mutants was always my book. And so knowing that X-Force is coming so quickly, knowing that it's going to transform completely so quickly, makes me just want to hang on desperately to the last shreds of when it could still be seen as reasonably being the New Mutants. Oh, there are certainly really good moments in here. And there are really good moments, I will say, visually as well as writing-wise. I am not a fan of Rob Liefeld's art, especially in this context and especially in this era. I mean, I think that he improved a lot as an artist over time and especially as a storyteller. I mean, he's still not one of my favorites and he doesn't work in a style I particularly like. But there are a lot of kind of novice issues in this particular era of his work that really, really bug me that he's eventually going to kind of grow past. But there are also some really good moments. And, you know, one of the things that we kept on writing in our notes is, oh, we kind of see why people really love this stuff visually, going back to it as adults. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much momentum to everything. There's so much excitement. And one of our listeners, and I wish I could remember who to credit them, pointed out that in this era, this was before the collector boom. This was before X-Men Volume 2, number one. And so comics were seen as more disposable than they would be just a couple of years later. And so for a comic that you just rush through because you're really excited to see what happens, and then maybe you trade it to a friend or you sell it or you just lose track of it. Well, and it was cheap and fun and what they cost proportional to your allowance at that point was a lot less than what they knew now. Yeah. So if you were just rushing through it like that, if you were letting the momentum of the book carry you, I can see the flaws of the art being a lot less evident. Liefeld definitely has momentum. It might be kind of bull in a china shop momentum at moments, but the force and the speed are to be reckoned with and to be admired, I think. So all of that background in place, I say we dive into the first issue we're covering, New Mutants number 90. This issue opens in the Morlock Tunnels, where Sabretooth is hunting Samson, one of the survivors of the Morlock Massacre, because Sabretooth, and I quote, doesn't like to leave a job unfinished. And to remind everyone, the Mutant Massacre was really the first big X-Men event. During that time, the tunnel-dwelling outcast mutants, the Morlocks, were mostly wiped out by a team called the Marauders, who were working for Mr. Sinister. The Marauders are basically a set of clones of a bunch of supervillains. 
One of the more satisfying things about the post-mutant massacre era is we just get to see Sabretooth killed over and over and over and over again. That'll be happening again in this arc as well. Yep, he'll be back and back and back and back. But not the same one. This, by the way, is kind of an off-brand clone of Sabretooth that we've got here. He's sort of lithe and elfin, and his in-fight dialogue is just stunningly, spectacularly weird and offbeat. Yeah, but what I really like is as Caliban finds him, as Caliban, who has headed back to the Morlock Tunnels, having escaped his master apocalypse, specifically to get revenge, Caliban himself knows all about how to have awesome, dramatic dialogue. Well, he should. He's named after a Shakespearean character. Another Morlock, dead. These very walls weep with the cries of the slain, and the waters run red with their heart's blood. And echo with the drama of my declarations. And so he and Sabretooth confront each other, and there's a big goddamn fight, including a feature that we're going to see more and more of around this era, which is a two-page spread, but at a 90-degree angle. Basically, it's a big vertical spread so that you have to turn the comic sideways to look at it. So looking at these, I'm kind of wondering about them because having them as two pages doesn't add a lot. They're not that detailed. They're not that spectacular. And what I wonder is whether they became popular on issues that were a page short. Oh, okay, so you mean like you were supposed to have 22 pages or whatever, the artist only turns in 21, and so you get an extra page by flipping it? Yeah, or you need to have an extra page before a specific ad break, or you need a page turn in a specific place, but basically you need to pad things out by one page in that part of the comic, so you just rotate something and make it into a spread. That could very well be. Now, it's kind of hard to tell because Rob Liefeld has a tendency to have very large panels. Like, you know, you're not seeing panel, 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 panel the way you do with some artists. Instead, you're just seeing a couple that really highlight the figures that he wants to draw, because those are clearly his priorities. And occasionally slivers of their faces. Occasionally that as well. So I don't know whether that's the case, but I think that's an interesting possibility. So they're fighting in the Morlock Tunnels. We have this great big war continued from their conflict in X-Factor. Caliban's trying to get revenge. Sabretooth is just trying to kill all the Morlocks. Meanwhile, above ground, the New Mutants and Cable are surveying the wreckage of the Xavier Manor. Fortunately, the underground areas are still intact, as we see via a blueprint copied and pasted from the official handbook of the Marvel Universe in a layout that makes me want to cry. Yeah, it is literally just a copy of a page from the official handbook. Sharing and a panel with a huge amount of blank space on one side. It's pretty strange. No, it's, it's not strange. It's bad. I mentioned that we're inclined to be more charitable reading this as adults. And that's true to some extent, but there's definitely a real big comics editor and writer part of my brain that looks at every single one of those pages and goes, okay, with five minutes, you could have made this better. You could have made this work. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, we're in such a remake culture cinematically right now. Like, I almost wonder what you could do by remaking comics. Even keep the same creative team. Just have them be more experienced at this point. I would actually really love to see that in general. That's not specific to this, and it's not even specific to work that I don't like. So many of the early X books, and we have a generation of artists and a generation of writers who were influenced by those books coming up and basically as the big powers in the comics industry now. And I would love to see them retake and rework the same stories and the same worlds and the same scenarios and the directions they take them. There are a few people who've done that or who've played with that. I'm thinking of Jim Rugg inking over Jack Kirby's pencils a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen some of that. It's pretty rad. But yeah, I would love to see page and story redraws from modern creative teams, I think, or even from contemporary ones. I think that would be pretty amazing. But in this case, I would mostly just very much like to see this particular layout handled competently because it makes the ghost of Will Eisner cry. <laughs> It's interesting because I was used to myself being the person who 
had this big hate on for this era of New Mutants. I mean, just given the New Mutants was my favorite book, and I felt like the changed direction when I was a teenager, I felt like it ruined the book. But now I find myself being far more charitable than you, and I, I guess that is probably just because you're an editor, so you focus on the stuff more that doesn't work. It's not just the stuff that doesn't work, it's the stuff that doesn't work and is easily solvable. I think before it was really easy for me to write off what I disliked as largely being a stylistic preference, and now it's a lot easier for me to read more informedly and creatively. And so I'm finding things because I can do fine with the I don't like this, but it's good. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's a stance that I feel like I'm I'm very, very well honed at taking. And it's a stance that I can apply when I'm editing, too. There are plenty of books that I've worked on that aren't necessarily styles I would choose, but I recognize as good work and I'm happy to edit in kind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it frustrates me so much when I see things that just aren't good. Fair enough. Like one of the things I like about creative work is seeing things and going, I couldn't have done that. That's really good. I respect that as something it is and specifically as something I couldn't or wouldn't have created. And here I'm looking at it and just going, this is not competent. Well, regardless, the New Mutants are in the X-Mansion for a very specific reason that happened apparently off-panel. Cable mentions at one point that Cyclops had suggested that since Freedom Force was after the New Mutants, they should go hide out somewhere, specifically in the ruins of the X-Mansion, the mansion that was destroyed at the end of Inferno by Mr. Well, Sinister. in the intact sub-basements of the X-Mansion, not just, like, build some tents in the rubble. Right, good point. Yeah, we're, we're not talking, uh, you know, Fallout base building by any means. But yeah, we've had it established before that the X-Mansion exists above ground as, you know, stately Xavier Manor but also below ground with a bunch of cool high-tech stuff. Well, stately Xavier ruins at the moment. And so the new mutants are exploring. And I gotta say, this is kind of cool. It's kind of cool seeing the team go back to the building that was their home for so long, but definitely much older, more experienced, with a completely different leader in a completely different context. Like, for me, that really pushed the old nostalgia buttons. It really made me excited to see how much the characters had grown and changed. We get a brief tour of the still-existent HQ Cable talks to the New Mutants a bit about what he's got planned for them. They're each going to be developing their own academic curriculum. They're going to be working on the Danger Room. But first, he wants them to design themselves new costumes. Okay, the New Mutants have gotten new costumes many times over the course of their careers. Of course, they started out in the traditional Xavier School Black and Yellow. Then they had their graduation costumes that they started using before they were supposed to. Then they designed their own costumes from stuff they found in the attic. And now it's time for a more cohesive look again. Those second and third instances of costumes, they didn't really look like a team. Now they do. Yeah, that's part of what Cable wants. He asks specifically to design their new costumes. With motifs that express team unity, including variations that express your own identities. Commander, Cable, sir, new costumes will not hide selves from Freedom Force. But they might confuse them momentarily, Warlock. Is Freedom Force, like, super, super easily confused? Do they lack object permanence or something? So I feel like if they were trying to confuse Freedom Force, you know, dressing in different clothes is one thing, but I keep going back to that Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch with the Confuse-A-Cat service, that when your cat's feeling lethargic, they come and, like, dress up as penguins and jump around and teleport and stuff until your cat gets confused enough to be okay. I kind of feel like that's a particular tactic that would have worked better with Mirage still on the team. Oh man, it totally would have. Her powers her. are kind of singularly suited to that approach. To confusing cats and or Freedom Force. Yeah, so my theory about this is actually slightly lower key, and that's that Freedom Force has become overly reliant on Destiny. They no longer actually pay attention to their surroundings at all, just to what she tells them to expect to be there. And so with her dead, they've just completely fallen out of practice of using any kind of powers of observation. So, yeah, they do use the mansion's uh, design computers to create new uniforms, sending the designs for ship to fabricate remotely. 
And I want to talk a little bit about these uniforms because we were discussing them and we seem to have very, very different opinions of them. I think the basic idea of the uniforms is solid. And I appreciate the moment where we establish that Sam doesn't need goggles. He just thinks they look cool. This is a place where I think I'm going to have an easier time with them when they're drawn by someone else, too, because Liefeld, the way Liefeld handles the fabric aspects of them just makes them look horribly uncomfortable and ill-fitting, which definitely doesn't help. Yeah, that's true. Uh, clothing looks very strange on these bodies. Yeah, like I'm getting some kind of weird wedgie just looking at these. <laughs> but what we have is each character essentially having their own defining color and having, you know, uniforms that seem to be of a kind. I mean, these characters are clearly on the same team. They're similar patterning. But for instance, we have Boom Boom's variation of the uniform being a pink mini dress. Sam having a purple one with goggles, like you said. Sunspot has red, but he sort of has this Ninja Turtle headband slash mask, which I gotta say is pointless because it's not like they have secret identities, but it's totally something Sunspot would wear. Yeah, I would assume that Sunspot makes a lot of his costume choices based on what looks cool. And then we have Wolfsbane with an orange version of the uniform that is by far the most normal of them all. Which it's a little prisoner jumpsuity. A little bit, but it also kind of fits her personality, that she would have something a bit more nondescript than everybody else would, that she wouldn't customize it quite as much. So I like that. It showcases the personalities of each character while still making them look like they're members of the same team, honestly, for the first time since the black and yellow. There are two primary commonalities among these costumes. One is the X logo. The other is these sort of overdrawn diaper parts. On all the costumes with pants. Yeah, it's like this uh, kind of white part that goes over the inner legs and crotch of each costume. And that is what makes them look like a uniform, but it's kind of a strange decision. It's a bad choice. Let's be serious. It's a really bad choice. Right. And I mean, like, you know, if you have white over your butt, like if you sit down and, you know, the chair's not fully clean, then people are going to start questioning. Continually. Huh. They also highlight... Two Liefeldian anatomical peculiarities that, that match kind of oddly, which are very, very carefully articulated individual breasts and weird, like, incredibly long, blank expanses of crotch. Yeah, the lower abdomen and crotch of each character are these magnificent, endless planes. You could walk across them for days and nights, never finding civilization. <laughs> and the thing is anatomically. So here's the thing about Liefeld, and I was finally able to nail exactly what bugs me here. Uh-huh. I mean, aside from the diaper thing. But, <laughs> so, stylized anatomy is one thing, and it's something that I'm not always fond of, but I see as stylized. Michael Turner, for instance. Okay. Like, his anatomy isn't realistic, and it's not necessarily my bag, but it's consistently stylized. Liefeld's got two stylistic quirks at this point in his career that work in direct opposition. One of them is his tendency to draw in detail and with a lot of fine lines, every muscle and every detail of some parts, but not all parts of bodies. And the other is his really dubious grasp on anatomy and perspective. Having a lot of detail in one aspect of your art makes the places where it's not present really, really stick out. This is what I think of as the Batman Begins problem. When you try to make something fundamentally unrealistic really realistic, the places where it breaks from that are going to stick out like bad CGI. So that's a lot of what I have trouble with with Liefeld's art in this era. It's not specifically what he does wrong, which I would have less problem with, I think, in an artist who didn't have those particular stylistic preferences and quirks to go with. Like those two things working in opposition are a lot of what pull me out of the story with the art. That makes sense. But regardless, the New Mutants have their costumes, whether or not they look comfortable or not, or whether or not the white parts are poorly placed or not. 
And so they're becoming more and more of a team, but not everybody is as on board as everybody else. Specifically, Richter is not so sure about this cable guy. Richter has dark and terrible history with cable, which is just teased at this point. What we're going to learn maybe half a dozen issues after the story is that Richter thinks that cable killed his dad. Strife actually murdered um, Richter's father, but Strife, as we again don't know now, is a clone of Cable, and so they look identical, etc. So Richter is running around with the New Mutants following the guy who he believes to have murdered his father. And Cable realizes that Richter's got a problem with him, but he doesn't bother to ask because, and I quote, It would be useless to pry. Would it? I mean, you could just say, hey, buddy. Are you okay? Can we talk about it? Can we grab a burger and just hash this out? I mean, we're talking about a man whose approach to leadership when one of his students appears to be having some kind of mental health crisis is to lock him in a straitjacket and toss them in the smallest room in the house. That is perhaps a good point. So, you know, when I say he's a good teacher, what I mean is that he's a better teacher than Xavier or Magneto. Not necessarily that he's, you know, actually a good teacher. It's just that the bar is very low. It is. And so Richter, while carefully not telling the reader or his teammates what his problem is with Cable, is still kind of searching his thoughts, searching his feelings for what he wants to do, for how he wants to handle this. The New Mutants are the only family I have left, and Cable, with his new uniforms and practice sessions, has stolen them from me. The way he stole my father. Wait, Richter, he put your dad into a weird color-coded outfit with a white butt and then forced him to fight robots in the danger room? And that's how he died. That is pretty harsh and also confusing. I know, right? (laughs) And speaking of the danger room, that is indeed where Cable sends the new mutants. And I gotta say, this part is a lot of fun. Like, they're fighting a lot of robot guys with kind of Naginata weapons, and TIE fighters are attacking, and they're dodging around these big floating islands in the sky. Also, Sunspot appears to have developed a fairly epic rack. Yeah, he does look kind of busty in a couple places, it's true. There's one panel in particular, it's just kind of one of those, huh, moments. This is another thing. I'm sorry. I'm I'm going to harp on the art less in later issues, but there are so many moments where it's just so new and it's terribleness here. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about what these children are wearing? We can always talk about what any characters are wearing in X-Men. Yes. Yeah, their workout clothes? Now, okay, I'm technically a child of the 90s. I was born in 1982, so I was I was a kid during that time and an I adolescent. I think you're technically a child of the 80s then. I barely remember the 80s. But regardless, I mean, okay, I know there was a lot of spandex, I know there were bright colors, but this is kind of its own thing. I'm fairly certain that nobody ever wore clothing that looked like this, or at least not clothing whose waistbands were this high. What I really enjoy specifically is that Sunspot is wearing this kind of one-piece swimsuit-looking thing, where the leg holes are basically cut up to the top of his hips. Yeah, he's wearing what appears to be a swimsuit borrowed from Psylocke. But you know what? Sunspot is very proud of his physique. He loves showing off, so I'm going to allow it. It's not that I feel that the outfits are inappropriate. It's just that they're baffling. They are a little baffling. They're deeply baffling. They're profoundly baffling. And what's even more baffling is that Leifold in interviews has said that he wanted to make the kids dress, you know, more contemporarily, like just, you know, regular kids in the 90s. And I am 99% sure that no actual human beings have ever worn outfits like this. Well, in the 90s, we were in Florida and the New Mutants are in New York. So maybe it's a regional thing. It's like the different kinds of chowder that you get in different regions or the different kinds of barbecue. It's the different kinds of spandex. I have trouble accepting that. Well, it's absolutely 100% true and made of facts. So you remember how, like, at the beginning of Star Wars, the uh, Star Destroyer uh, kind of pans across the top of the screen and it goes on for a really long time? And then at the beginning of Spaceballs, they parody that by having it go on for way too long? I'm just saying, you can do that with Liefeldian pelvises. It would be awesome. Yeah, they're really long and they're really flat, and everything else he draws is so textured that it just really sticks out. 
Like, we're not trying to fixate on this. It's that point of contrast. It's the three-word sentence with an exclamation point in the middle of, like, a long Faulknerian discursion. Except instead of a short sentence with an exclamation point, it's like the pelvic equivalent of someone just going, um... So it's the pelvic um. It's the pelvic um. It's a narrative device. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they are training in the danger room in their strange outfits, fighting TIE fighters and stuff. And Richter kind of freaks out because this reminds him of how his father died. What? So I should say... (laughs) Fighting TIE fighters in the danger room? Richter's feelings about how his father died and his stories about it, like, I really get the impression that nobody had figured out any details at this point. So they were just kind of saying stuff. I like the idea that Richter's father is still alive and this is just a series of weird dreams he's had. <laughs> they finally meet Richter's dad and Mr. Richter is just like, oh, uh, New Mutants, I'm, I'm sorry. He's, he's always been like this. It's just an overactive imagination. I mean, you know, sometimes it's very charming, but other times uh, we get this. This is why you don't take Richter to see scary movies. Richter freezes up in the danger room fight. Uh, They turn off the room, turn off the scenario, and he blows up and he storms off to the Morlock tunnels to, I'm not sure what he's trying to do, actually. Well, I don't think he is either. But before we cover that, I want to talk about Cable's reaction because I find this really interesting. As he says, I would order him back, but this isn't the army. Why get into a battle of wills where we'd both be losers? I'll talk to him later, quietly when we're alone. He must accept me as leader as the others do. He must choose to remain. And if I push him too far now, I'll lose him, as I once lost my son. In battle with TIE fighters and fluorescent costumes. Wait, 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 wait. What if Richter's father were Cable's son? You know, actually, that might kind of bring it together in an interesting way. And a clone of Richter murdered him. Oh, geez. Okay, don't do that part. That's too much. That's a bridge too far. And Richter is strife. I do enjoy that Cable, unlike Magneto and unlike Xavier, treats his students like adults. Because, you know, yes, they're technically teenagers, but they're not young teenagers, and they've seen a whole lot. Well, he doesn't really quite treat them like adults. He treats them like very headstrong teenagers with superpowers who are, to some extent, going to do whatever the hell they want to do, no matter what he says. And he's realistic about that, which I really appreciate. There's a point later on where someone's yelling at him, you know, aren't you going to tell us that we shouldn't be going into battle, that we shouldn't be doing this? And Cable basically responds, well... You're too young and you shouldn't be doing this, but I also recognize that you're probably going to do it anyway. So let's maybe focus on damage reduction. Yeah, like uh, he's really the best leader the New Mutants have ever had. And as much as this era has many, many problems and as much as it basically is the beginning of the end of the New Mutants as we know them, like as a concept, this is kind of great. Yeah, I feel like Cable is the comprehensive sex ed to Xavier's staunch denial and Magneto's abstinence only. That is an excellent and unexpected parallel. Thank you. (laughs) Well done. So, yes, Richter does indeed stomp off, and he is indeed, as you said, trying to show the New Mutants how wrong they are. And one thing I enjoy about Richter in this era is that he really doesn't think things through. Like He's so based on his anger and his fear and his passions that logic tends not to really play into it. His plans don't necessarily make any sense, and that's consistent with his character. Oh, and he's not wearing his costume, and that's important. What he's wearing here is going to matter shortly. He's in his usual shirtless vest and pants and headband. So he, he tromps off into the Morlock tunnels, thus attired, and he very quickly runs into first Caliban and then Sabretooth, who of course immediately attacks Richter and allegedly guts him, although his injuries never actually show up and only seem to um, actually affect him when the scene calls for it. See, this is weird because it would be totally in character for Sabretooth to rip out Richter's guts, which is the way he describes it. 
And that is indeed what apparently happens, but there's no panel where there's any actual damage. Yeah, maybe Richter's just exaggerating dramatically. Maybe. Turns out uh, Sabretooth just scraped him a little. But regardless, things are incredibly dire because there's this big clash of the clawed titans that Richter has just sort of wandered into. He's not at all prepared and he's alone. And it doesn't take long for the new mutants to realize that he's gone and to spring into action to head to the Morlock tunnels to find him. So... They uh, they all suit up and Cable does his equivalent of suiting up, which is grabbing a giant gun and a whole lot of grenades and yet another new costume. He has a new costume like every four pages. Because earlier in this issue, he was wearing this kind of metal enclosure. It was like armor, but there was no articulation. Like, I don't know how he would have moved his joints. There were things that kind of looked like dryer tubing. It was very strange. Now he's in his more standard poofy blue armor stuff. It's basically made out of grenades. It's a grenade suit. And I gotta say, the closing splash page, as they are all suited up together, about to head in, kinda great. I mean, the anatomy may not work, whatever, but seeing the new mutants in their new uniforms with their new leader in a status quo that I really like, even if the quality of the comics themselves are not so great, it works for me. This brings us to New Mutants number 91, and this is the first appearance of a writer who we're going to be seeing a lot of later. This is Fabian Cieza. This issue, he's the one scripting instead of Simonson. He's actually going to end up taking over New Mutants once it becomes X-Force and writing for quite a long time. I'd say he and Scott Lobdell are probably the two biggest X-Voices of the early 90s. Yeah, probably so. And of the two, um, Nicieza is an interesting dude, and he's one of the writers of this era who's actually still been around. He just did a Cable and Deadpool series. Yeah, split second. He also did the Age of Apocalypse Secret Wars series, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And he's an interesting dude, and he's one of the writers who I think works best with Liefeld, who's able to sort of get into the nonsensical but fun spirit of the art and kind of run with it in ways that a lot of folks, especially a lot of folks during this era, had trouble with. So Richter is doing his best to escape this conflict while he's possibly holding his guts in and possibly completely fine. It's unclear. And Sabretooth and Caliban continue to bloodily duel. Caliban's dialogue remains kind of awesome. You can rake at me all you want with your claws and your barbaric fervor, Sabretooth. But for one such as Caliban, who has weathered the agonies of physical reformation and the ravages of self-distress to find a purpose in life... Your mania is as unto a gentle breeze against a granite cliff. Okay, that may be true of Sabretooth's mania, but what about his butt? Because I've got to say, I have my notes here, and just what I've written underlined twice is not even John Romita Jr. has ever rendered a butt this lovingly. It's true. Sabretooth has kind of a great ass for a well, tiny just, live He just dude. has a very detailed ass. Like, it's very much a, this is a butt, and it is here. And there is no arguing that that is what it is. I would certainly never dream to argue that. But I gotta go into this Caliban thing, because he's so very poetic, and we've certainly seen him quite serious in the past. You know, before he got powered up by Apocalypse, he was always railing against his helplessness, his inability to defend his people. Do you think there's a universe where Caliban's just sort of a happy, goofy dude? I hope so, because his life has been terrible. But so, we see him much bigger now, after being powered up by Apocalypse. We see his dialogue much more dramatic, which makes me question— did that come from Apocalypse 2? Like, in between the genetic treatments and, like, physical modification? Did he have elocution lessons? Oh, or maybe improv classes? Unquestionably. We've already seen that Apocalypse puts a lot of value on style. That there's really no sense in taking over the world if you don't do it dramatically and with certain specific and codified elements. And I think in Apocalypse 2, especially from what we've seen of him as a team leader and the emphasis he puts on teamwork, you know, using those games as team-building exercises, encouraging his horsemen to practice their battle banter together, for instance. I think that's entirely, entirely plausible based on what we've seen established canonically here. Yes, and? And now I'm just imagining them playing the park bench game. I don't even know what that is. 
It would get really violent real fast. Uh, yeah, that's probably yeah. true. So we have this Clash of the Titans thing going on right here. And of course, we have Cable and the New Mutants charging into the sewers to rescue their friend. They are, however, confronted first by Mask and his Morlocks, who show up basically to taunt them a bit and then head on their way. But it makes sense that Mask would be down here. I mean, he's one of the most powerful surviving Morlocks, and he's kind of leading a lot of the survivors as this evil gang, basically. It seems like they're thrown in here just to establish that Mask has kind of gone off the deep end at this point. Yeah, the fact that he confronts the new mutants and then as soon as Cable brandishes a gun, you know, mocks them some more and runs away, they will be back, so at least it sets up the fact that they're going to show up again later in the story. To taunt them a second time? I shall taunt you a second time! And so the new mutants pretty quickly find the fight and attack Sabretooth. And it's kind of hard to tell what's going on here. Well, we know Boom Boom collapses the roof on Sabretooth, which leaves him facing off against Richter. And he's about to kill Richter, but Richter decides that he is going to stop Sabretooth. And he taps into his powers and he superheroes so hard that he spontaneously manifests a white tank top. Right, because between one panel and the next and the next and the next, he keeps almost alternating between the usual open vest that he wears and a white t-shirt, and certainly no sign of- It's a tank top. There are never sleeves. He never quite pushes hard enough to pop sleeves onto it. He'd have to be a lot more hardcore for that. Yeah. And so we have this scene that It's like the opposite of someone flexing and popping off their shirt. (laughs) Right. So we have this scene that, you know, should be pretty dramatic. It's Richter pushing through his presumably severe injuries to channel his powers enough to take out this guy that way outclasses him. But it's just so distracting seeing the fact that his clothing keeps completely changing between panels. Now, this is a moment where, again, this bugs me. There's rule of cool. There's the details don't matter that much if it's awesome thing. But there's also storytelling and storytelling consistency. And when you are an artist who doesn't draw people particularly consistently, who doesn't particularly consistently render anatomy or scale, for instance, keeping character details consistent is really important because it's how those characters then become identifiable. Yeah, but we just accept it because that's what we must do in this era. So I have another theory about this, which is that Richter is in fact doing this using his powers, that he just straight up grows the tank top with a seismic weaving. Oh yeah, it's like how Superman has super weaving. Yeah, yeah, it's just like that. Didn't you know earthquakes are like magnetism? There's really no limit to what they can do. (laughs) I accept this completely. Well, regardless, the important part is that Richter is still alive. His guts appear to be still inside of him, a shirt or not. Sabretooth is taken out for the moment, and so the characters can breathe just a little bit. And Richter makes what appears to be an awkward attempt at lampshading the shirt situation by saying, I guess I blew my top for real this time. They don't have too much time to say, huh, to that whole thing, because very quickly Sabretooth shows up again. God, they really can't get rid of him for very long, can they? And the Morlocks, led by Mask, also show up. And the Morlocks are there ostensibly to fight the new mutants over who gets to fight Sabretooth. But as Cannonball points out, they're really not there to fight Sabretooth and maybe they can just go home now. And what I really like is the Cable says, you know what, Sam? That's a good point. Let's do that. It's not just a situation where the narration tells us that Cable's a good listener and really trusts his students, but he actually does. The scenes show us that fact. And it's the right choice because Caliban then shows up to join the fray and Caliban is not going to be deterred from his quarry. Only one weak mutant must be killed today. I have chosen Sabretooth. Give him to me or I will choose another. Having thus chosen Sabretooth, Caliban snaps his neck while the Morlocks and the ex-kids basically go, eh, whatever. That's right, Sabretooth is dead and gone forever and we're never going to see him again. And we actually won't see Caliban again for quite a long time. He'll show up, but that won't be until the Executioner song crossover years later. 
which is interesting because he was set up as such a major figure in this era and he's just going to be off the table for a long time. Yeah, characters are kind of getting thrown in and out a lot. And I think a lot of that is a byproduct of what we talked about earlier, that we have this new generation of artists who's coming in and who's suddenly being given a lot of creative power. So we're seeing a lot of the central characters set up by the previous generation of creative teams kind of forgotten about and swept under as these guys bring in new characters of their own creation. Or just characters who were sort of their favorites at the time when they were readers. So everything's okay. Richter is fine. He's been rescued. Uh, The New Mutants have not suffered any casualties. They head back to their headquarters, where Rain, of course, scolds Richter for being a jerk because, yes, Richter was a jerk. That's absolutely true. And Rain also has grown really distinctly pointy elf ears in her human form. It's strange, yeah, the way that Rob Liefeld draws Wolfsbane in her human form, her ears are super, super pointy. And I mean, I guess and super that's... long. Like, they're not wolf and she just has big old elf ears. Very strange. So Richter resolves himself to, you know, be a better teammate, to cooperate more, and goes to the danger room to train, where he sees Cable fighting a whole lot of robots hand-to-hand. And he's so impressed that he decides that he's going to follow Cable for now. I don't like you. I don't trust you, but maybe, just maybe, I'm beginning to respect you. Now, in hindsight, Richter still thinks that Cable killed his father? Well, maybe that makes him Richter's dad now by right of arms. That's possible, but what I keep coming back to is that D&D campaign we were a part of. You know, in in the 4th edition rule set, you can use your non-combat skills to resolve conflicts. And so, like, we convinced that one ghost to help us that one time by just wrestling in front of the ghost. Yeah, and impressing it sufficiently. We wrestled so well that that ghost was totally on our side. That wasn't us, that was Jesse and Shannon. Well, regardless... And so, yeah, now we have a cohesive team. Their first conflict has been survived. And here's our awesome status quo, which will last for a fill-in and two issues before the next crossover. Also, Cable is Richter's new dad now. Also, Cable is Richter's new dad. So, New Mutants number 92 is that fill-in issue that we've mentioned. And we were just going to sort of skim over it and describe it very briefly since it doesn't tie into continuity. But after reading it, we've decided to not cover it right now at all and later just give it its own time and space. Because it is a glorious nonsense mess, and it's beautiful, and it deserves way, way, way better than just a brief skim. It's actually pretty wonderful, yeah. So we will instead cut to the next two-part, or New Mutants number 93 and 94, which are set in Madripoor. This is the first and only adventure of this team before they basically start to disband again. So, you know the popular wisdom that the first page of a comic should sort of establish what's going on and establish what that comic is for you? Mm -hmm. I'd like to point to uh, New Mutants number 93 as a prime example of this, because it opens with Cable covered in spikes and guns and capsules, eye-glowing, yelling and shooting. And this is truth in advertising. This is what you see here is what you're going to get. Yes, it is. And it turns out why he's yelling and shooting is that the New Mutants have gone to Madripoor because they were asked for assistance by somebody who's there. It turns out why he's yelling and shooting, says Miles, like he needs a reason beyond being Cable. (laughs) Good point. It's just sort of inherent. And apparently the New Mutants have been set up. They're being attacked by a bunch of dudes in green robot costumes. They're having a great big fight. And they're not doing that well, but fortunately they get assistance from the skies. Sunfire has flown in to help them. Yeah, good old Sunfire, you know, member of the X-Men a couple times before he just kept quitting repeatedly, guy who wears a funny no-nose fish mask, guy who basically is a jerk whenever possible and may or may not be related to Mariko Yoshida, depending on how you spell last names. Inconsistently. Here he is. He apparently is the New Mutant's contact, and he insists it was not he who set them up, so they're kind of confused as to just what the hell is going on. They have, in fact, been set up by Strife, as we discover when we see him talking, you know, on a screen to Karma's evil uncle. 
General Coy is skeptical about interacting with dangerous mutants, specifically the new mutants who he's had previous clashes with before and who have a chance of identifying him. But Strife doesn't care. Strife, you know, basically says, you've been paid, do your job, start fights. Now, we know that Strife, in all of his blade-costumed glory, runs the Mutant Liberation Front. He's kind of Cable's nemesis. And apparently he has different branches of the MLF in different parts of the world because we're here introduced to the three Japanese members of the MLF. Oh, it's like shitty X-Corporation. It kind of is, yeah. So here we have Kamikaze, Sumo, and Dragonus. What? Okay, so let's talk about them a little bit. So Kamikaze is a guy that has a very Japanese flag-looking costume. And when he crashes into things, there's an explosion, which I gotta say is a little uncomfortable of a concept. Yeah, that's in really dubious taste. Sumo is a large man who appears to have some degree of sumo training. Okay, I want to talk about Dragonus's name because it really annoys me because dragon is like basically a gender neutral term, right? As far as I know. Yeah, it's like naming a character Doctress or Wolfess. <laughs> Wolfess. So I do have a question about Sumo, because as near as I can tell, he's just a sumo wrestler, and that's it. Like, is he actually a mutant? I mean, maybe he's much bigger than other people, but sizes are a little hard to get a handle on when Rob Liefeld's doing the art, so I don't know, maybe he's just a normal-sized dude that happens to be dressed like a sumo wrestler and to have a big belly. Or maybe he's just a normal sumo wrestler. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe he's a guy who always wanted to be a sumo wrestler, but wasn't allowed to be because he was a mutant and his mutation's entirely unrelated to sumo wrestling, but those are the skills he uses in battle. That could very well be. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Forearm, he's not. Thank God. <laughs> so as all of these villains are posturing, as Strife is trying to convince General Okoye that uh, putting himself at risk is totally worth it for their shared goals, Sunfire is explaining to the New Mutants what's going on. They fly into Hightown, the rich area of Madripoor, and talk. Sunfire also is one of the many heroes who we'll see who's had previous contact with Cable. Apparently he's met Cable's son before he knows Cable's son met a bad fate. And Cannonball points out something we've noticed about Sunfire before, which is that... Even when this guy's saying something nice, his voice sneers. So he is actually rather specifically the guy with the speech impediment that everything he says sounds super sarcastic. I totally believe that. The one we mentioned when we were talking about Gambit's sexy speech impediment. Except I don't think that's actually true. I think Sunfire just always is really sarcastic. He is kind of a jerk. He could be part of Asshole Factor, that thing that Elizabeth and I were talking about. Or he could just be on a team with Namor and it could just be team better than you. Could be Namor, Sunfire, Emma Frost, sometimes Doctor Doom. I like this plan. Well, regardless, Sunfire tells the New Mutants what's up. He tells them why he brought them and Cable in. Apparently, there's a street drug called Sleet that's been going around, and when overdosed on, it's been making its users murderously violent, which, you know, that would be a problem on its own. That's no good. But it gets kind of worse because organized crime apparently has been testing it by causing small villages to wipe themselves out, causing everyone to kill each other. And... A drafted U.S. postman named Jacob was exposed to this stuff during the Vietnam War and suffered a series of hallucinations involving, you know, increasing encroaching on it and near-death experiences before discovering that he had actually died in the course of the war. Oh, man. Now, there is a deep Inspiring cut and also a spoiler. Is Jacob's Ladder actually that deep a cut? It's also an old enough movie that I don't feel that bad about spoiling it. Ah, uh, you know. Well, anyway... So, yes, everyone agrees that this is a good thing to fight against, that they really need to stop the Mutual Liberation Front. The Mutual Liberation Front? Yeah, I, I'm assuming it's just a typo that someone just, you know, entered the dialogue wrong. But I love the idea of the Mutual Liberation Front. Like, is that just sort of a new agey support group? Yeah, it's a everyone... consciousness raising group, like from the 60s and 70s. Alternately, it is an orgy club. 
I feel like Strife would run an orgy club, but I feel like everyone would get poked by spikes too much and would all go home. Yeah, no sex with Strife is safe sex. There are just way too many blades involved. I mean, you know, risk-aware consensual kink, I guess, but that's a lot of risk to be aware of. But, like, I feel like there are only so many people you can have involved in something like that and have it be safe. And if we're talking about an orgy club, like, having that many loose blades around seems really ill-conceived. Like, I feel like there are going to be significantly more limbs liberated than, you know, egos or whatever. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. This is why you come here, isn't it? Come for the continuity. Stay for whatever the fuck that just was. <laughs> well, anyway, the New Mutants, Cable, and Sunfire head into Lowtown, the poorer part of Madripoor, to track down the Mutant Liberation Front. No, who, no, we're calling them the Mutual Liberation okay, Front from here on. <laughs> to track down the Mutual Liberation Front, to stop the spread of the street drug Sleet, which is killing a lot of people, and just to, you know... A.K.A. the latter, A.K.A. MK Ultra. And so they split up into a couple of groups. And that gives them the chance to have something that I feel is sorely missing from this era, which is inter-teenager dramatic dialogue. Sunspot first questions Richter about his beef with Cable and then turns his attention to Rain, who apparently has hooked up with Richter between panels or between issues or something, because this is the first we've heard of it, but apparently it's old news for the New Mutants. I don't get it, Rain. How can you and the brooding Marvel actually be an item? I mean, you're so normal. Except when I grow fur and fangs. Look, Berto, Rick may be moody and impulsive, but he has a good heart, and he's been kind to me. So have I. So has Sam. But I haven't seen you falling for us. You? But, Berto, you two are like brothers, safe and sweet. Rick is different. Okay, first of all, Rick is totally safe and sweet and ridiculous and a puppy in human form. Second, Rain totally fell for Sam and everyone on the team knows it. That is a little strange, yeah, but I gotta say... Rain hooking up with the bad boy with a heart of gold, which is very much how Richter's being portrayed these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's how he's been portrayed from the start, really. Well, he was more the scared boy with a heart of okay, gold yeah, when he showed yeah. up. Okay, yeah, But once he got a little bit past that, once he came more into his own, he pretty much immediately settled into that. I mean, I'm thinking of him with Boom Boom in Asgard, for instance. But I do like that we're seeing a little bit more of this because in this era, so much of that is lost. New Mutants used to be a book about teenagers having feelings at each other while almost getting killed a whole lot. And, and now, sometimes actually getting killed. And sometimes actually getting killed. And now what we mainly have is each character defined by their relationship to Cable and to being one of his soldiers. And so seeing some good old interpersonal soap opera going on, that's a nice refreshing thing, and I wish we got more of that around here. But unfortunately, the soap opera is cut short when the Mutual Liberation Front attacks. Kamikaze shows up to explode. Dragonus Etta is there, you know, to set things on fire. I guess her powers are fire-related. And Sumo um, is big and strong? Pretty much that. And there's a great big fight, and things are going okay until Strife is teleported in by the other member of the Mutual Liberation Front, Zero, and hits everybody with a paralysis ray. Oh no, not a paralysis ray. It totally is. And Strife and Zero manage to be so badass that despite being in the same panel as the rubble in which the New Mutants have fallen, they're just sort of standing out in some white space. Yeah, man, there are definitely a lot of these characters are in from another dimension and just sort of hovering over you to say some stuff. It's kind of like those old science fiction movies where they'll cut to clearly a different set when they cut to a different character talking. I'm thinking the brain that wouldn't die. Now, Strife, being a good villain, is all about explaining exactly what's going on. Specifically, he plans on unleashing this drug, Sleet, now that it's been tested, on a whole bunch of major cities, causing everyone to kill each other. There are going to be countless casualties. And after he does that, he figures all the humans will take mutants seriously and listen to them and do whatever they say. Wouldn't that cause the humans to take other humans seriously instead? I mean, I feel like Strife hasn't thought this too far through. I think mainly he just likes wearing spikes and blades and killing humans. Yeah, he does describe himself specifically as 
I am friend to mutants, an enemy of humankind. You know, he's a nice, straightforward dude. He kind of reminds me in a way of a less nuanced version of Magneto in terms of his look at human-mutant relations. Like, with Magneto, it's very textured, he's got a lot of anger and a lot of rage, and he's very judgmental, but, like, you can see where he's coming from. And with Strife, we just don't know much about him other than that he's a bad guy and he's a mutant supremacist. You know what Strife is doing? Strife Hmm. is playing Diana Warrior Princess. You should probably explain that. So we're going to learn more about Strife's origins much later, and we're going to learn specifically about his childhood in the miniseries The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Strife grew up in the same era as Cable, in the distant, distant future. And the impression I get with how he runs his supervillain syndicate is he is the guy who didn't do a lot of research on the distant past before coming back. Now, Cable was raised by Scott and Jean. Cable was raised with a lot of anachronistic traditions. He was taught to read, for instance, what were basically dead languages by that time. But Strife just has, you know, little bits and snippets of rumors and probably about four centuries worth of them kind of mashed up together. The way that, for example, we in the 20th century tend to look at like the Middle Ages and early Renaissance as one big mashup era and also unicorns. (laughs) Right. Diana Warrior Princess, uh, which I referenced, I think I've referenced on the podcast before and I've linked to it as mentions before. I know I have because I had to look it up, is a great old tabletop role playing game basically based on telling fantasy stories in a roughly, I think, 17th to 21st century that's mashed together the way a lot of, you know, traditional European fantasy mashes together earlier eras. Nice, nice. And and combines, you know, fantasy and fiction and actual historic elements, thus the title Diana Warrior Princess. It's a lot of fun. It's a great bit of world building. And it's something that I always come back to in reference to time travelers who don't quite get how brief any given era is. I like the idea that Strife just doesn't really understand our modern era. He doesn't understand 1991. Yeah, so Strife's idea of how to be a supervillain is based on a combination of having been raised by Apocalypse and never having really learned accurate history and, like, a lot of bits and pieces and rumors. He's like Bishop with the history books, but instead of history books, he had, like, a couple dogmatic religious texts. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. So these new mutants have been captured by Strife. We have Cannonball, Boom Boom, Warlock, and Sunfire— Now, the rest of the New Mutants, the rest of the team, have split off to look for the Mutant Liberation Front on their own. Don't you mean the Mutual Liberation Front, I do mean the Mutual Liberation Front. And they see a figure approaching, so Cable sends Sunspot off to confront the figure while he goes around the back. And Sunspot, it's interesting here to see him thinking to himself about how this is going as it does. We really get a a picture into how the usual rebellious Roberto da Costa sees Cable. Cable has faith in us and our abilities, in all of us. He listens when we talk, and he believes in me. Our old teacher, Professor Xavier, never did. He's a leader, a strategist, a real hero, and I'll die before I let him down. And Roberto never feels things halfway, so I feel okay about that. Is Cable his dad now, too? Cable's a lot of people's dad. And so that makes this doubly troubling for Roberto when it turns out that the stranger in question who attacks Cable as soon as he sees him is, in fact, Roberto's other mutant hero. Magnum P.I.? Wolverine. Oh. I wish it was Magnum P.I. And so, yeah, Wolverine and Cable are having a knockdown, drag-out fight. Apparently they have some kind of mysterious dark history between them, which, of course, we won't find out for years and years and years, and it'll be a total letdown when we do. Spoiler, Wolverine killed Cable's shitty kid. Yeah, that's a big part of it right there. But I can only imagine how horrified Roberto must be. I mean, mommy and daddy are fighting. Look at this. Roberto is a kid who just said he would die for Cable, and he's got a framed picture of Wolverine in his bedroom. That's been established. So 
Do you think it's the same framed picture, like from the same series of framed pictures that Wolverine gave Nightcrawler in that one annual for his birthday? Oh, man. Do you think Nightcrawler just re-gifted it to Sunspot at one point? Do you think that Wolverine just gives them out for every occasion, every gift? Oh, man. Like, uh, not even common present holidays, but like, you know, for Arbor Day, everybody gets a framed picture of Logan still in his mask. No one knows what the hell to do with them. Like, they've just got them in boxes under their beds and stuff. So they're just a bunch sitting around the mansion and Roberto found one of those. The other thing that your mommy and daddy are fighting comment takes me to immediately is imagining like Wolverine and Cable co-parenting. And it's really weirdly easy to imagine and plausible. And I think the reason for that is that like the two of them as a couple are basically half of the extras in the X-Men animated series. Oh, yeah, there was that one X-Men animated series episode where they're at a carnival and you see these two like like, enormous angry men walking together with a balloon. Right. I remember we tried to make up stories about them. They were great. No, and clearly that is a different universe as Cable and Wolverine who are with a balloon and going to find their tiny sunspot child who has run off. This is especially interesting because in the Ultimate Universe, Cable and Wolverine are the same person. That makes it kind of narcissistic, I guess. Oh, it's like a thing that I'm not going to say on the podcast because it's a spoiler for the Lego Batman movie. Huh. I need to see that movie still it looks fun well anyway there's a big fight because what could possibly be more early 90s than cable and wolverine fighting and being on the cover of the issue in which that happens Ooh, ooh, i know the answer i know the answer what's that cable and wolverine fighting but also strife but it's interesting to see them go against each other because we have wolverine a character who's extremely well established like his background hasn't been fully fleshed out yet but the concept of it certainly has and then we have cable who's kind of an international man of mystery and guns Yeah, and the narration, while talking about Wolverine as this mutant with all these powers, describes Cable as... A man shrouded in mystery. Cable's gifts are less specific, but no less impressive. His cunning and bravery are as prodigious as his speed, endurance, and strength. Which makes me think, based on the narration, that maybe Cable wasn't envisioned as a mutant at this point. Maybe he was just a badass cyborg dude. He's a mutant. Vagueness is just among his powers. Oh, okay, okay. He's mutantly vague. It's like from Journey Quest. You know, the spell vague. What does that do? It's difficult to pin down. (laughs) I love that gag. And Wolverine pulls in his claws with a snack so they can have a fist fight, to which Cable says, If you think fists alone, even those fists can stop me. You're even more stupid than you look. Bad move, Bob. You insulted me. Oh man, it's two characters I normally do. But wait, Wolverine, is he that easily offended? Like, has him being insulted ever really been a specific problem? I sort of assume this is some kind of weird mating dance and or social ritual that they just kind of go through this nonsense ritual dialogue and then they headbutt each other for a few minutes and then go get coffee and everything's cool. Oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. So as they posture and, you know, flare their eye spots and show their colorful tails to one another... We still have the rest of the characters imprisoned by the Mutual Liberation Front. Uh, Of Omaha. Dragonus specifically is watching them. Uh, Don't you mean Lady Dragonus Etta? Oh, right. Lady Dragonus Etta. And I kind of love this scene because Cannonball is trying to talk her down, trying to say, you know, why are you doing this? So many people are going to die. To which she replies, Cannonball, why so interested? I know. I believe you are sorry that I shall be leaving. Aren't you, handsome one? And she kisses him. Well, that's certainly a choice. And then leaves, which is kind of strange. I mean, is that what normally happens? Like, you know, your enemy who you totally philosophically disagree with ties you up and then makes out with you? It's a dragon thing. Oh, okay. Dragons make out with people, with strangers a lot. Dragonesses do. Oh, do they get a lot of cold sores? I mean, I feel like that comes with risks. Like, maybe they get mono more frequently than No, they're dragons. dragons. Dragons are immune to mono? Yeah. Maybe they develop that ability when they get to venerable age. 
And so Boom Boom is super jealous. Now, we've seen that Boom Boom has a crush on basically any cute boy in sight. But mostly Sam. And so she's a little horrified. Sam, get that goofy look off your face. What's with you flirting with that scaled nightmare anyway? She's a killer. A killer with lips a man could die for. But maybe she hypnotized you or something. Besides, she probably gave you rabies. (laughs) Rabies, huh? You really think so? A beautiful girl like that? Beautiful? Man, I gotta snap you out of it. What can I do? Except this. You think she's so great, Sam Guthrie? Let me show you how a real woman kisses. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been only five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. Oh my god, Miles. <laughs> I was so pleased I could find that quote. I just... <laughs> and the Liefeld art, and I just... Rob Liefeld's The Princess Bride. I hate you. No, you don't. I do, I do. This specifically, retroactively, is why we're getting divorced. Oh, this is it right here? This is it. This is the critical moment in time. William Goldman, what have you done? Well, anyway, (laughs) it is actually really a charming scene. And there's this bit of narration about how, you know, they're both kind of blown away by what a good kiss it was and how neither of them is really mad about the whole thing. But it turns out what really happened was that Sam somehow lured Lady Dragoness Etta in with his sexiness. I guess he took some lessons from Gambit so that while they were kissing, he could steal the key card from her headdress. What? Okay, so there are a couple problems here. For one thing... Yeah, for one thing, he wasn't kissing her headdress. He wasn't kissing anywhere near her headdress. For another thing, I'm not going to say who keeps a key card in their headdress, because we know that Storm keeps lockpicks in her headdress, so maybe it's just a thing in the Marvel Universe. Oh, I kind of figured that it's like how a lot of women's clothing has those little tiny fake pockets, and so they have to keep stuff elsewhere. I mean, Lady Dragonessetta's doesn't even have room for her, her internal organs, so I assume there's not room for much else either. Well, there you go, but somehow, using his, like, hair or whatever... Sam did indeed filch the keycard from Lady Dragoness Etta, and he unlocked Also, them. isn't he paralyzed? Weren't they in a paralysis rate? How was she not paralyzed by the, like, paralysis field? It's probably best not to think about any details in this entire story. What the hell is going on here? Oh, so much. But this is kind of a significant scene because Cannonball and Boom Boom are going to end up a couple and be together for a very long time. And in a way, this is kind of where that relationship starts. With theft and subterfuge. In fact, Boom Boom even says... I'd never have thought you could be so underhanded or so, so awesome. They're kind of adorable together. They're super adorable together. Are you kidding? So, okay, we have this. We have these characters escaping thanks to, you know, tongue, keycard theft or whatever. And Uh. outside we have Cable and Wolverine still trying to kill each other. And so it's kind of like when, you know, two cats are fighting. What do you do? You spray them with a spray bottle. And so. So Richter, in fact, breaks up the fight by dropping a water tower on top of the two. I kind of love that. I especially love that it works. You know, after they both get drenched, ruining Wolverine's cigar, and a gag I really enjoy. They uh, shake themselves off and groom themselves for a few minutes. And Um, it's all fine. But they do calm down, and apparently this is just how they greet each other. They've got enmity, but they don't, like, you know, hate each other completely. So they just, I guess, stab each other and punch each other a lot every time they're in the same place. Now, Jay, you mentioned earlier that um, we'll find out why they have this hostility between them. To clarify, that's in a miniseries that'll come out in 1999 called Wolverine Slash Cable, Guts and Glory. Coincidentally, also the title of Cable's sex tape. So all the characters pretty quickly converge in a warehouse where all the sleet is being stored. All the heroes are together again. Yay! I'm just imagining the sleet as sleet 
And I know it's not. I know it's this drug stuff, but I'm just imagining boxes and boxes of like partially frozen rain. I mean, we do know that Strife's plans are a little iffy sometimes, so I wouldn't put it past them. It's just miserable. The people in the towns only kill each other because the weather's so bad. And so they're all in here. They're about to destroy the sleet when, of course, the baddies show up out of nowhere. And by out of nowhere, I mean they're just sort of in a panel with no background suddenly. Simonson does her best to justify this. Through an open doorway, Strife enters. And this is one of those points where, you know, you mentioned that she compensates pretty well. You should not have to explain this. This is a thing that should be visible in the art. This is one of those places where the art needs to be part of the storytelling. It's not just that you draw cool pictures and then someone adds narration around them. Yeah, well, regardless, there is a fight, and Liefeld is pretty good at drawing fights, generally, at least. I mean, he's good at making fights visually engaging. Whether he is good at drawing fights that play out in coherent ways is another question, but like you said, I think that's a rule of cool place. And it's going relatively well. There's lots of exciting punching and stuff. Until Richter tries to zap Dragonus, who's still shooting fire, she manages to set the entire warehouse and all the sleet aflame, and the good guys escape while the bad guys, theoretically, are all killed in the fire. Of course, none of them actually are. Well, that's a rousing conclusion. With Strife apparently dead, the new mutants are left with no way to track down the two missing members they've kind of forgotten about for most of the last couple issues, but are now, you know, back to try to find or Rusty and Skids. Right, so Cable assures them, Oh, don't worry, that's definitely their next priority, to rescue Rusty Collins and Sally Blevins from the Mutant Liberation Front, bringing them to the side of good once more. Spoiler, nope, that's not going to happen for ages. But while those two were on ice, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Who do you think was portrayed the best in the X-Men 90s cartoon? I'd ask who was portrayed worst, but we all know it's Cyclops. Okay, so if we're going for a best, I gotta go for Rogue. I mean, she's got such passion and pathos and southern growliness, she's both tough and sensitive at the same time. She's honestly one of my very favorite depictions of Rogue, who's one of my favorite X-Men characters. Well, and the actress who plays her is great, too. Right, that's Lenore Elizabeth Zahn. So, according to Wikipedia, Lenore Elizabeth Zahn is an Australian-Canadian actress and politician who has represented the Electoral District of Truro Bible Hill in the Nova Scotia House of Assembly since 2009 as a member of the Nova Scotia New Democratic Party. Zan has also taken a lead position in regard to environmental racism and has introduced Bill 111, the Environmental Racism Prevention Act, to address this issue in Nova Scotia. So basically Rogue is awesome and the voice actress who plays her is also kind of awesome. Well, I will admit that Rogue is great. I gotta say my favorite, um, the one that I think is done best is Beast. Beast is just absolutely goddamn wonderful. There's really never been a bad Beast in an animated X-Men series, has there? There really hasn't. Yeah, as opposed to Storm, who's never really all that great, unfortunately. All right, so, another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, My seven-year-old daughter recently told me that she liked superheroes, but they were only for boys. Thanks to your show, I don't actually read any comics, but I love the show, I responded by listing about 20 female superheroes in less than a minute. But in making my list, I realized that an awful lot of them had ambiguous motivations or had gone through phases as villains. Jean Grey, Psylocke, Rogue, etc. Do female heroes really turn evil more than male heroes, and if so, why? Okay, so first of all, kudos to you for having the answer to that question on hand. Um, that's an important one. I've talked about this a lot, and I also these days work in a comic shop, so get to address it directly. But man, this is a really awesome time to be coming into superhero comics as a girl and as a reader, because not only are there a lot of really awesome female superheroes on the scene right now, but there are a lot of really, really good all-ages superhero comics with female protagonists. The two that jump to mind immediately are, of course, Ms. Marvel and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Oh, but, don't forget Squirrel Girl. Squirrel and Squirrel Girl, is Girl awesome. And yeah, there's a ton out there. And if your daughter is interested in superheroes, once she realizes they're not just for boys, I know that we have some listeners who are about her age who are big superhero fans. 
So parents, if you've got any recommendations for this listener's daughter to help her find some superheroes who are more like her, please drop them in the comments on this episode. As far as going evil, I didn't have time to crunch the numbers really hard on this, but my overwhelming gut instinct is that you're right. And for a really depressing reason, and that's that for female characters, and honestly for our society's view of women, power is seen as corrupting. We live in a culture with a very, very deep-seated fear of powerful women and women in positions of power, and that plays out a lot in our fiction, unfortunately. I mean, I can go into real-world examples, but I feel like that's going to take this podcast in directions I don't quite want to push it in right now. But yeah, that's a really, really big and really unpleasant, unfortunate, and inaccurate part of our cultural narrative, and it's something that gets reflected in our fiction. I think that's happening less now. I think we're seeing more women and more female characters who aren't coming from that background. And I think, you know, I think some of it is also just sample size that we see so few prominent and very powerful female characters that that particular trope has disproportionate impact. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's a problem. What's not a problem, and speaking of heroes, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and entities. The first one today is from Caliban. The ghosts of the innocent haunt these tunnels. When last Caliban was here, he was too weak to stop the snuffing of those lives' candles, too weak to do more than cower. But though his soul was lost along the way, Caliban vows to visit crimson vengeance upon the heads of those responsible, Jeffrey Davis and Charlotte. They think themselves invincible. They think their actions without bloody consequence. Soon, they shall think themselves dead. As for the second one, normally I only do angry Claremontian narrator things, but I will very occasionally make exceptions to that under very special circumstances. And uh, so today, I believe we've got a special thank you from Warlock. Self-friend Miles Ellis, we are terribly pleased to see you in the wake of such dramatic changes to our status quo, our leader has left. We have a new leader. We have new digs. We have new territory. Yet it is good to see, self-friend, that you have remained steadfast a rock in the rapidly changing streams of time and continuity. We thank you for your friendship and your continued support, self-friend. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con the first weekend of March in Seattle, Washington. Next week, Archangel torturedly broods, some color-coded vampires enact their plan, and everyone gets a girlfriend. 